All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for loving us and taking such good care of us. And thanks for your word that uh, gives us such um, timeless instruction. Lord, we just want to hear from you today, from your heart, not from a religious list, but from your heart. Lord, please do that, do that work in our heart today that you would desire to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to the book of Hosea. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago after Daniel, we went over to the right half of the Bible, which is the New Testament, and did a book of Philemon that lasted one week. Now we're back to the left half of the book, uh, the part before Jesus physically came to the earth, and we call it the Old Testament, and uh, we pick up in the book of Hosea. Hosea begins a section, what we call the minor prophets. You might hear that term used in Bible talk. Um, it really doesn't mean that the minor prophets are less significant or less relevant or any of that, but rather they're just smaller books uh, in general. Interestingly, Hosea is a little bit longer than Daniel, uh, and Daniel, uh, the major prophets include uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the minor prophets are from Hosea to Malachi there at the end of the Old Testament, so that if that kind of helps you get with a breakdown a little bit. But anyway, this is one of the minor prophets. Some of us, uh, I acknowledge, uh, and I just want to say this, uh, sort of a, a couple of things at the outset a little bit, if I could, if you just give me a minute. Uh, one thing is that I recognize that not everybody has the same sort of Bible background, if you will, uh, when we come into a place like this. And, you know, we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I try not to assume that everybody knows all the history or all the whatever, and so I try to recap uh, as much as I can. Um, but if you come into a place like this and you're like, Hosea, really? <laughs> I've never read Hosea. Uh, did your Bible have Hosea? Um, that's okay. That's totally okay. What I want us to do is just kind of, again, as I said earlier, I just want us to journey through this together. And there's so much richness in all of the Scripture, and I think we do ourselves a disservice. And, and frankly, I think the, the, the church, the modern-day church, has done a disservice by just picking out, you know, our favorite four or five pieces of the Bible, frankly. And so, you know, this is a book that we probably wouldn't, if we were just picking out our, you know, our top five like we're going through a smorgasbord, we probably wouldn't pick this book. But I think that what happens is when we go through the discipline of reading through the Bible and studying through the Bible, then we catch some depth that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise, okay? Now, having said that, this book is about a little bit of a, uh, uh, the metaphor in the plot line of this book is a little sensitive. You'll figure it out um, pretty quickly. And, uh, and I also recognize, as I said earlier, that there are children in the room. All right? Raise your hand if you're a kid. Give it up for yourself if you're a kid right now. You could do better. I've heard you do better. But um, you don't need to demonstrate. Uh, but anyway, so there are kids in the room, okay? And that's awesome. Uh, there are also 
parents in the room, maybe of those kids. All right. Now, <laughs> I didn't ask you to give it up for your parent for yourself. <laughs> you got to hit the cues when they're cued. Uh, but anyway, no. Okay, parents, give it up for yourselves. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, so we'll probably stop there. Neighbors, grandparents. Um, you know, we talk about spectrums a lot, so much that I get teased for them. You know, there's theological spectrums. There's the God's sovereignty, man's responsibility spectrum. There's the uh, church background spectrum of various types and, and all of those. There's another spectrum that I thought of this week, and that's, I would call it the child exposure spectrum. Does that make sense? Some kids uh, are just, we'll just say it this way, are, are more exposed than others to sensitive topics, okay? And I just want to be I just want to be straight up to say I think it's great that we have a little bit of a of a variety uh of that here okay now there's some things that you know scripture says be innocent of evil okay uh, to a certain extent we need to be innocent of evil and our world is evil in a lot of ways not completely but in a lot of ways and so there are some times when I think it's very imperative upon parents to navigate sensitive subjects with their children at their discretion between them and the Lord, okay? And that doesn't always look the same in every family, and I want to embrace that, okay? Everybody okay with that? It's just like every other spectrum. If you try to tell me, okay, here's God's uh, sovereignty and here's man's responsibility, and right here is the exact right spot on the spectrum, that's where we as Christians have made a horrible mistake, to try to expect everybody to be on the same spot on a spectrum that really both truths are taught very clearly in Scripture, okay? So in the same way, not every parent uh, is the same uh, in their convictions about their family, and um, we just want to all seek the Lord together, okay? And again, like I said before, I do not have all the answers. And there are some things that, I mean, we've been doing this parenting thing for almost 33 years. It'll be 33 years this week. And we've done some things right, and we've done some things wrong. And so, uh, and we're still learning. And so it's a journey. So, we're going to deal with a sensitive subject. That's a way long introduction admittedly, to tell you that we're going to deal with a sensitive subject and I'm aware that there are children in the room. So what I'm going to do is certain words, I'm going to use $3 words, <laughs> okay? Does that make sense? And if you've got a $2 kid that's maybe this tall, just don't put that on his crossword puzzle, right? Uh, I didn't check all the words on the crossword puzzle, but I'm guessing some of these words are not on the crossword puzzle. Uh, if you got a $4 kid and, and I roll out a $3 word, then you get to explain that and debrief it with the kid at home. Is that fair? Because guess what? Society has some issues that you're going to have to debrief with your kids at home. And I would encourage you to do that. And let this place be an exercise in the context of Scripture, having dealt with sensitive issues, because sensitive issues have been going on for a long time, and wouldn't that be a great way to navigate the discipleship of our children? Fair enough? 
All that to say we're talking about a sensitive subject here. Okay? Everybody good with that? All right. This book is all about relationships because God is all about relationships. It's about marriage, it's about betrayal, and it's about restoration. But ultimately, please, please catch this, the restorative love that God has for his children is what drives everything he does. This book uh, describes Hosea, who's a prophet, and his relationship with an unfaithful wife as a picture of God's relationship with his unfaithful children in the Old Testament the nation of Israel. Okay, in the Old Testament, we see a picture of God as the husband, the nation of Israel as the bride, and there are lots of references metaphorically that God carries through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is, the, is sort of pictured as the groom, and the church is the bride of Christ. That doesn't negate the prophetic picture of Israel in the, in the big scheme of things. We've talked about that before, but just know that we're in the Old Testament today. Israel is a, is a picture of the bride, and God is a picture of the husband. And so God is playing out this metaphor through the prophet Hosea. Hosea is going to have an unfaithful wife, and that's a picture of God's unfaithful nation of Israel. And what God does in response to that is, is frankly beautiful. So that's the situation. Notice our lives and our ministry are not separated. Hosea is going to live out this metaphor. Our lives and our ministries are not separated. God allows us to go through things. Have you ever noticed this? Sometimes God allows us to go through things because that is our ministry. And let me just encourage you because oftentimes in the thick of it, we don't feel like this is ministry, right? In the thick of a challenge, we don't feel like, oh, it's okay because God's got me in school. No, it's just, we just kind of plow through it. But keep in mind, God allows us to go through hard times. And sometimes we feel like maybe it's because God has forgotten us or God doesn't care or God has, you know, turned his back on us. But no, in reality, in many ways, God is preparing us. God is doing that work in us because we are a minister and the ministry and the minister are not separated. And so this is very relevant. If you put yourself in the mindset of Hosea, uh, this guy, uh, he's got a hard task ahead of him. So in some ways, uh, as we go through this, we'll see ourselves in the person of Hosea. We might see ourselves in the person of his wife. But please, throughout all, I want us to see the heart of God through all of it. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so again, here's where I don't want to assume everybody has the same sort of Bible background. Uh, in the days of, of, of Israel, after they entered into the promised land, they'd been in They've been uh, slaves in Egypt. God brought them out, and they wandered for 40 years in the desert, and then they went into the promised land. Then there was the time of the judges, and then they went into the time of the kings. The first king um, was Saul, and then uh, David, and then after David was Solomon, after Solomon's son, Solomon's son Rehoboam. During the reign of Rehoboam, the nation divided, um, and there was the northern kingdom called Israel, which is a little bit confusing because the whole thing's been called Israel all, all the way through. But the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Okay, southern kingdom being the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, uh, descendants of Jacob, 
and the northern kingdom being the other ten descendants of, of, of uh, uh, the descendants of the other ten of Jacob's sons. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and by the time we read Hosea here, he's just putting us in time, time frame. He is ministering into the northern kingdom. He's doing it during the reign of Jeroboam, the, the northern king, uh, who had actually probably the longest reign, I believe, of the northern kings. And it also coincided with the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah while they were kings in Judah. Okay, so that kind of places it for us. Um, again, we'll fast forward a little bit. You'll see that the nation of Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And so this is right before that, and so he's going to be talking during that. The reign of, jo of, of or the, the ministry of Hosea lasts about 70 years. We're going to say roughly from 790 B.C., to around 720 B.C. And so if I told you that the Assyrians came in at 722 B.C., then uh, Hosea would have probably been around to see that, and certainly he was there for many years prior warning about that. So really, it's kind of like, you remember when Jeremiah went through Jeremiah chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. Yes, they are. The warning for decades, the Babylonians are coming to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a similar sort of parallel thing, warning that the Assyrians are coming to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's what uh, Hosea is talking about. Verse 2. <clears throat> when the Lord began to speak to Hosea by the Lord, speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry, and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so, literally, this is where the message and the me or the the minister and the ministry uh, go together, and it's not always easy. God tells this Jewish prophet, "I want you to go find a harlot, and marry her." And by the way, children of harlotry. Different commentators have different. Uh, interpretation. Does that mean she already had some children by harlotry? Or does that mean she's going to have children after she's married to him by harlotry? Either way, we'll call it ugly, right? And so we don't need to necessarily break it down. But in my mind, probably there's a good chance that he's, get, he's going to find a harlot to marry and uh, her children, okay? This is a hard ministry, right? And, but God says, uh, I want you to do that. He didn't say go to prophecy school, study real hard, get A's and B's, and you'll be a prophet. He said, no, go marry a harlot, <laughs> right? That's how he does in our lives sometimes, right? I mean, I, you know, you think back to the things you learned in school versus the things you learned in life. I mean, I'm not belittling school. I mean, education is fine, right? I, you probably know my bias. It's a little overrated, right? Um, the wisdom of God through the experience of knowing God and walking hand-in-hand hand with God, that's, that's good stuff, right? And so education's okay. I'm not making too much light of it. But uh, keep in mind, God didn't send, send Hosea to, to prophecy school. He told Hosea to go marry a harlot. And so experiential fellowship with God is really what prepares us for life. Keep in mind also, you know, we think of 
the nation of Israel, as we read through these Old Testament prophecies, we think of them as just like horribly wicked, which they were. But they were horribly wicked in idolatry. And all the while, they were crazy religious. And it's hard to even get our heads around this in terms of our modern culture, how somebody could be so steeped in idolatry, but also so very religious. I got to tell you, we went to, we went to Israel back in uh, March, and um, you know the nation of Israel right now is just very secular, very secular. And uh, God loves those people and all that. God's not done dealing with the nation of Israel. We talked about all that, but you know, I think I've told the told I've mentioned this before. Uh, they have Sabbath elevators. Anybody know Sabbath elevators? Sabbath elevators on Saturday every every week, and you know this kind of disrupted our travel plans a little bit. On Saturday, you have to take an elevator that stops at every floor. And it's been wired such that you can't push the button. You know why? Anybody know why? Because it's too much work to go like that. So what do we do? What do we do since that's too much work? We take the stairs, right? Because this is too much work right? These people were, st were steeped in idolatry and at the same time steeped in self-righteous religion. So the point is, you know, we, we live in a society that's not quite like that. We live in a society that's very, just, it's very secular. And, you know, honestly, our society has kind of lost its ability to blush because we're so secular. You know, if, if God told a prophet today, go marry a harlot, we'd we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand how in-your-face offensive that is as they would have. You get the idea? So they were, they were steeped in idolatry, to be fair, but they were also super self-righteous and, and hyper-religious in a way that did not honor the Lord. And so that's a, that's a subplot that we could go off on for an hour that we won't, but the rea reality is self-righteousness and idolatry often go hand in hand. So, what was the idolatry they were involved in? Well, there were various gods that they worshipped. Many We've talked about this before. You know, the gods of the neighboring countries, when they came into the promised land, they sort of adopted their practices, right? And it's very easy if, you know, you know the proverb says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Well, they sort of became companions of fools, and they adopted the idolatry of these neighboring uh, countries. So, they had these various gods, and I just want to highlight this just for the sake of, of teaching in context of our society. Think about this in the context of our society. Do we worship Baal in our society? A little bit of a trick question, right? <coughs> we, don't have, we don't have like a little, I don't know what he looked like, um, but we don't like have a thing that we set on our mantle and we call him Baal, right? But Baal was the god of nature and of human intellect and the philosophy of man. Now let me ask you again. Do we worship Baal? You bet we do. Molech was the god of pleasure and fun. Do we worship Molech? Well, we don't have a little Molech on our, you know, fireplace mantle, but do we worship the god of pleasure and fun? I think so. Mammon was the god of money and power. Do we worship that one? I think we do. Asherah was the god of sexual expression and lust. Do we worship that one? 
I think we do. As a society, keep these in mind. We don't have these little idols on our, on our fireplace mantles, but we are, we are in many ways very, very similar to the idolatry that they practiced. And so, so often I think we can think of, well, they were, you know, sometimes I think we read the Old Testament and, and we don't think it's really relevant to us because they were so stupid they worshipped Baal. Like, who would, who would put that thing on their fireplace mantle and, like, pray to it? That's insane. And yet, I think we're very guilty of, of the same idolatry as a society. And so, just keep that in mind. So, verse 3, he, uh, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring, to an end, bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, uh, I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, names have meanings. I'm, get, I'm getting ready to explain to you that names have meanings, and most of you can't get past that Gomer because we live in a Gomer pile society, Right. So just get past Gomer, uh, the name. Uh, the, Gomer was a biblical Old Testament character, female, uh, the wife of Hosea. Okay, but Jezreel. Jezreel is a name that would be the son of Hosea and Gomer. And Jezreel means scatter. But in another sense, Jezreel means sow. Like if you sow seed, like um, parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow, okay? If I'm sowing seed, if you read it one way, I'm scattering, right? But if you read it another way, I'm very deliberately sowing. You see this? So this word sort of has double meaning, scatter and sowing. That's important. Jezreel means scatter and it means sowing. And so um, notice also, just while I'm thinking about it, that first word in verse 3, what's it say? So. So. So what? So he went and took Gomer. If God tells, catch this now, God tells a prophet, a guy who loves the Lord, hey, I want you to go find a harlot and marry her. And we don't see any argument. We don't see any, are you sure? We don't see any, uh, I'm not doing that. Like, Lord, I'll go in my relationship with you so far, and that's it. Now, we don't say it quite like that, but we often live it like that. God, I'll, I'll, I'll go this far with you, and that's it, right? None of that from, from Hosea just says, so. So he obeyed. So he did what God said. So he marries this uh, gal, Gomer. They have a son. Uh, the son's name is Jezreel. Jezreel is a valley in in what is now modern-day Israel. If you, look at, if you look on a map, uh, sort of the, the valley from the Mediterranean Sea uh, eastward uh, is a very huge, broad valley. And then as you go eastward, uh, more towards the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, it kind of goes into more of a mountainous area, right? And if you, look, if you stand up on the mountainous area, look out over the valley, it's the valley, they call it the Valley of Jezreel. There's been a lot of warfare over the years. That's where the nations would, when we talked about in Daniel, the king of the north and the king of the south, that's where a lot of those battles would uh, intersect 
and um, that's actually uh, also known as the Valley of Armageddon. That's where that final battle will intersect, and so um, it's, a, it's a very common place, but in this context, it also means scatter. God's going to do some scattering of the people. He will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Jehu was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel whose job it was to basically, uh, uh, probably no right, nice way of putting it, to, to exterminate the line of Ahab. Um, and so he did it, and Ahab and Jezebel, he did it, but he did it with so much uh, vengeance that it did not carry out the, the heart of the Lord. And so God's going to avenge that, and he's going to um, bring an end of the kingdom of the house of Israel. See that? Name this kid Jezreel, which means scatter, because the house of Israel, the adulterous uh, wife of God, has been so unfaithful that I'm going to scatter her. And what do the Assyrians do? We know historically. The Assyrians were famous for this. When they would conquer a nation, they would come in and they would, basically, they knew the power of culture. They knew the power of, of, uh, of, of the culture of a people, particularly a, a religious culture. And so they knew that they had to divide and conquer that. And so what they did is they brought in, they conquered all these various nations, and they intermixed them. And so they would take a bunch of the, Jew, of the Jewish people from the northern kingdom, they'd send them off to wherever in the Assyrian Empire, and they'd bring in other uh, people groups, and they'd bring them in here. And now you've got a hodgepodge of people, and just to bring it together, fast forward to the New Testament, right? Who did the Jews really, really, really hate during the time of Jesus? The Samaritans. The Samaritans, right? Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans are all those half-bred Jews, basically left over from the Assyrian Empire that dwelt in the region of the northern part of, of Israel. And so when the Jews of Jesus' day, those were sort of the remnant, the, the remnant of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. When they, they were the purists by that time, right? The Pharisees, and they had all their own issues, right? But the people they really couldn't stand, besides the Romans and um, the Gentiles and everybody else that wasn't exactly like them, one of the people groups that they really couldn't stand were the Samaritans because they were the half-bred Jews bought, brought on by these Assyrians. So what did the Assyrians do? They scattered. Was named Hosea and Gomer's first child? Scatter. Jezreel. That was his name. So, lots of meaning to those names. Verse 6. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Now, interestingly, if you look at verse 3, and again, I don't want to get too graphic, but if you look at verse 3, so he, that's Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this son, Jezreel, was clearly a child of Hosea and Gomer. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. We don't know specifically if this is a daughter of unfaithfulness or if this is a daughter of Hosea, but it's at least a daughter of Gomer. Okay? So just point that out. We got so much unfaithfulness in this book that we have a hard time tracking lineages. We'll say it that way. Okay? So, she bore a daughter. God said to him, 
Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen. It's a great picture of history here. So interestingly now, God is contrasting the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. But he says in, in verse 6, this daughter, name her Lo-Ruhana. Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ruhama means no mercy. No mercy. So you got one child named Scatter, and you got the second child named No Mercy. All right? And interestingly, God is going to contrast that with the mercy, at least temporarily, that he's going to have over the nation of Judah. Judah had some points of uh, spiritual revival in their history. Israel, the northern kingdom, had none. And so, uh, shortly after uh, Judah was conquered by the Assyrians, I'm sorry, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., Hezekiah is king in Judah, and uh, the Assyrians are kind of continuing their conquest. They come and they take most of Judah. They actually surround Jerusalem. We've read about this in the books of Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah. They surround Judah. I'm sorry, Jerusalem. It looks pretty ominous that everybody else has been captured. Uh, you're next on their menu. Hezekiah prays, and in one night, God kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, one angel. The killing power of an angel is pretty powerful, right? And so uh, Hezekiah and all the citizens of Jerusalem, the remnant, if you will, uh, they look around the gates and are outside the city walls, and there they are, 185,000 dead Assyrians. And so, uh, so God will have mercy on the house of Judah. He will save them by the Lord their God, not by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. He did it by an angel, an angel that killed 185,000 uh, Assyrians. And so God carried that out. He uh, dealt, he scattered and uh, had no mercy for those, uh, those in the northern kingdom at that time, and yet had mercy on the nation of Judah, just as he prophesied. Verse 8, now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Again, we don't know the particulars of that. She, we just know that she had a son. And then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. So literally, Lo-Ami means not my people. And so personally, I think he's probably not Hosea's biological son, but Hosea, again, as a demonstration of, of what God does. Uh, Hosea takes this child in and for the, for the teaching lesson. Uh, and imagine this, you know, again, we, we live our ministry, right? And so whenever this family goes to town, right? Picture this, right? You're walking down Main Street and the kids get a little bit ahead of you. Anybody ever, young kids, if you have young kids, the kids ever get ahead of you or behind you, whatever, and you got to kind of call them in, Right? Scatter, no mercy, not my child. Come over here. Right? Can you imagine? To a religious society, to a religious society of Jewish people who have a very clear understanding that there's a long history that names matter. Abraham had a meaning. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Isaac had a meaning. 
Uh, Jacob has a meaning. Israel, God changed Jacob's name to Israel because they both have a meaning, right? These names have meaning. They live in a culture. They live in a, in a deep tradition of significant names. And you got this guy who's supposedly a prophet of God calling his children to dinner. Come on, scatter. Come over here, not my child. Come over here, not mercy. No mercy, right? I mean, it seems crazy, but it would have, it would have been a powerful message uh, to anybody that, that saw it. So, so far it looks like God's pretty hard on these people. Yet, verse 10, there's always one of these kind of words. You ever notice this? Last week in the book of Philemon, the word was perhaps. Perhaps the Lord's doing something we don't realize, right? In this case, yet. Yet the number of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Not scattered, gathered. And appoint for themselves one bread and they shall come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel, now when I, when, when I sow the seeds of the Jewish people, right? When I plant them in the valley of Jezreel. And then verse, chapter 2, verse 1, that's, an, that's a, the chapter break should have been probably at verse 2, but anyway. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So you see this? God says, you know what? These people have rejected me. And here we've got to get a little bit of a, kind of keep in mind, we all answer to God on an individual basis, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever is an individual. That's a reference to you. For God so loved the, the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that if you would believe individually you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a promise from God. So God deals with us as individuals. God also deals with nations. And because, here again, this is one of those things we don't fully understand because we're not, we don't have the brain of God, but we trust that God does it because God talks about it. God deals with nations in certain ways. And so God, gives, God always gives opportunity for repentance on an individual level. And we need to never lose that. Because it seems like we could read through this and say, wow, God just destroyed all the northern kingdom? Really? No mercy? Yeah, no mercy. To those who didn't want mercy. Not my people? Yeah, to those who didn't want to be his people. Scattered? Yeah, to those who didn't care about being on the home team. Yeah, yeah. And yet, God in his prophetic picture has a bigger picture. I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't cast off the Jewish people. I've not, I've not like scattered them forever. I've given them the name that means scatter and so. And so interestingly, um, in Romans chapter 9, and Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul goes off on a, on a sort of a, a parenthetical thought, if you will, as he's going through all the theology in the book of Romans, he pauses at chapter 9, 10, and 11 to talk about the Jewish people. And basically, it's Paul's sort of um, 
dissertation <clears throat> on the fact that God has not cast off the Jewish people. God has actually got a plan, a prophetic plan for the Jewish people, right? And Paul wrote this in the first century A.D. In the first century A.D., the Jewish people looked like things were bad for them. Well, sure enough, in 70 A.D., they were, they were basically gone as a nation. And you've heard me say it before, from 70 A.D. to 1948, if you were a theologian, you'd be tempted to think, well, God just took care of them and they're gone. But no, they're restored as a nation, right? Ezekiel 37, I believe, the dry bones in the valley are risen back up, right? And God said, this represents the whole house of Israel. And what do we see today? We see a rebirthed nation of Israel. And that's just a, a prelude to what God will do spiritually in the reborn, in the rebirthed Israel. And it will be culminated in the millennial kingdom. And so that's really what he's referring to. The day is going to come yet, verse 10, chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 10, first word. Yet, the time's going to come when Jezreel is not going to mean scattered, it's going to mean sowed. And say to your brethren, my people, they're not going to be called not my people anymore. And say to your sisters, mercy is shown. No longer going to be called no mercy. God has a redemptive plan for the nation of, of Israel. Interestingly, the word return, check this out. The word return is mentioned 15 times in this book. 15 times. That's more times than any other book in the Old Testament except for Je uh, the book of Jeremiah. God has a heart to, for these people to return. And God has a heart for us to return to Him. You know, we were born into sin, right? Each and every one of us, born into sin. Born, we were, we might think we're Hosea, being all right before God. But in a lot of ways, we were born gomers, right? We were born gomers. Birthed in sin. And God God's plan from the very beginning is to have a way for us to return to Him. The heart of God is for His people to return. When we stumble and fall, His heart is to return. His heart is never to beat us up. He has to deal with sin. Sometimes there's consequence of sin. All of that, I totally get it. I understand all that. But God's heart is for His people to return. Wherever you're at today, if you're not moving in that direction, God's heart is for you to return. And God makes it available. God makes it available. God, do, God does all the work to make it available. We just have to respond to the Holy Spirit. So, no matter how much we feel like an outcast or that our sin can't be overcome, God reminds us of his restoration. Chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she's not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from be between her breasts. Let us, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are the children of harlotry for the, their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully for she said I will go after my lovers who give me bread who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And so, again, you know, God's going back to the, you know, he, he kind of outlines the problem. Then chapter 1, verse 10, he kind of explains yet the future hope. 
and now he goes back into the problem again. The problem is these people are unfaithful. The picture of Gomer as an unfaithful wife is a picture of the Jewish people's unfaithfulness to God, and uh, God is going to deal with them. And interestingly, she says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. You know, sometimes when we walk in sin, sometimes it works out this way, that we think it's all good. And sometimes God will even allow us to, to hang there for a little bit, where we think everything's fine. But it's not fine. And in this case, Gomer will say, uh, said, hey, you know, these, these people I was with, they gave me bread and water. They gave me wool and linen and, oil from my, and my oil and my drink. So they took care of me. But do they really take care of us? No. No. Our sin never takes care of us. Therefore, behold, God says, I will hedge up your way with thorns. This is a beautiful picture of God's discipline. I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. This is a picture of the prodigal son. God says, you know what? I haven't forgotten about her. I haven't completely forgotten about her. I'm going to, you know, she's going and doing her own thing. She's got enough free will. But I'm going to kind of give her a little bit of a boundary. I'm going to hedge her in so that she can't find her paths. I'm going to make it uneasy for her. I'm going to make her, I'm going to make the path not very well lit, right? I'm going to, I'm going to cause some difficulty in that path. What do we see in the prodigal son story in the New Testament, right? He spends everything on wild living and then realizes this stinks, right? And can I tell you this? Sooner or later, sooner or later, a life of sin will take you to the point where you say, this stinks. This stinks. And when that happens, it's a good time to look to the Lord. It's a good time to say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. What a statement. In the book of Revelation, the, God, uh, the, um, the church of the Ephesians, Jesus has a message to the church of, of Ephesus. He says, you know, you're doing all this great stuff. You're doing all this great religious work. You know, you, you're, you're rocking and rolling for the Lord. But you have this problem. You left your first love. Now go and return. And it's so easy. It's so easy for us to do the Christian thing and forget our first love. And that's God. Please don't forget that. Please don't forget that. It's so easy to do our Christian drill, right? Listen to Christian music, right? Do the Christian thing, show up on church, look good, smile good, all that. And if we're not careful, it just becomes a Christian thing. And that's not really what God wants for us. I mean, God wants more for us than that. God wants fellowship with us. And so I love the, the, the picture of this. Then she will say, why will she say it? Because God disciplined her. 
because God lovingly disciplined her like a, like a parent lovingly disciplines her chi their child. When a, when a parent disciplines a child, do they do it because they want to inflict pain? No. What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is to draw them back. Hebrews chapter 12. You turn there if you want. You don't have to. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had earth, human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Back to Hosea. God says, I'm going to put up a hedge. I'm going to, I'm going to wall in your paths. I'm going to uh, put some stumbling blocks. And then you'll say, I will return to my first husband. Then it was better for me than it is now. For she, had, she did not know that her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver. And she, I mean, I'm sorry. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Please catch this. God says, you know, the unfaithful wife, she took that grain, the wine, oil, silver, and gold, which I gave her, and she prepared all that for Baal the false god. Please catch this. If God gives you some knowledge or some ability to uh, learn things, please don't use it to worship Baal. Don't use it to worship philosophy and nature and all of that, right? If God gives you a little bit of leisure, don't use it to worship Molech, the god of pleasure and fun. If God gives you a little money, that's a stewardship. Don't use it to worship mammon, the God of money and power. Right? So she's saying, what God is saying is, you know, I blessed her. I gave her some of these things, and she used it to worship Baal with. Use our, everything we've given, everything we've been given, everything we've been given, the very life and breath that we've been given is to be used as a stewardship that God has given us. God owns us. God owns our money, God owns our lives, God owns our relationships, and all of those things are stewardships for us. We're just called to be faithful stewards of a higher master that loves us. She used these things for Baal. Therefore, verse 9, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen go to given to cover her nakedness, now I will uncover her lewdness in the, light, in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. So she's all this religious stuff. She, he said, I'm going to get rid of that. 
And I'll destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So then I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after other after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. And so God says everything that she thought was a blessing, I'm going to deal with and uh, for the purpose of restoration. Therefore, behold, verse 14, I will allure her. Can you believe that? God's adulterous wife, if you will, has done all this stuff all this idolatry, even took the stuff that God gave her and used that on her idolatry. And after that, God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'm going to draw her in. I'm not going to demand that she come back. I'm going to draw her back lovingly and graciously. What a picture. What a picture of a loving God to his wayward people. I'm going to lure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day of when she came up from the land of Egypt. Now we've got to give another, another bit of background. The Valley of Achor uh, is another spelling, if you will, of the Valley of Achan. Achan, if you may remember, when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, when they first came in, the first city they came to was the city of Jericho. Remember that? They marched around the city. You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You guys want to sing the song? You want to sing the song? You want me to just sing it? Okay, I'll sing it. Just kidding. Uh, they, say, they go around. They, you know, the walls came a-tumbling down, right? And they, it all went down, and they went in. Everything's awesome. Man, is this what it means? <laughs> you could just picture. Is this what it means to take the promised land? Sign me up. We walk around a few times, get, a little, get our steps in, as we say in the modern vernacular. We get our steps in, and then we blow a trumpet and yell, and then we go in and plunder the stuff. Cool, Right? Well, one of those guys that said cool was Achan because God said, hey, don't take their stuff this time. And Achan noticed a little Babylonian golden statue and some other cool stuff, and he took them and, and coveted them, it says, and he hid them and kept them for himself, right? So the next city they come to is what? Ai. They send some spies out. They scope out the city. Uh, the spies come back and say, Ai Shmei is a chump city. Just send a few of the guys up there. Uh, easy peasy. Nothing compared to Jericho. So they send a few of those guys there. What happens? They get thumped by the Aites. Okay? They get thumped by the Aites. They come back and Joshua says, Lord, what happened? And God says, don't you be presumptuous with me. What a lesson. God says, don't you be presumptuous with me. God says, there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp, and we can't move forward until that sin is dealt with. And Joshua says, okay, everybody line up, and, and one after another, they realize that the guy was Achan, and he's, Joshua says, what happened? He says, well, I covered this stuff, I took it, blah, 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 
and his sin had to be dealt with. He was, and probably his family was involved in, this, in the sin because they were punished as well and uh, where they were dealt with was known as the Valley of Achan or the Valley of Achor. And because that sin was dealt with, they could now move forward. What, the, what happened the next time they went to Ai? Easy peasy, right? And the rest of the book of Joshua is largely about all the conquest because they learned the, val they learned the lesson of the Valley of Achan, okay? Our sin must be dealt with. Now, we, we serve a God that's gracious, super gracious, so gracious. Our sin is ultimately dealt with not by us, not by our death, but by the death of Jesus Christ. Amazing, amazing substitute that we don't have to go through that. So anyway, the Valley of Achor is, as it says here in verse 15, a door of hope, a door of hope. And so uh, there's always hope with the Lord. And so I'm going to allure her back from her adultery, from her harlotry. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak comfort to her. I'm going to give her vineyards. And the Valley of Achor, her sin has been dealt with. She now has a door. Of, what, what was a place of punishment is now a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. And she shall come up as from the land of Egypt into the promised land. Beautiful picture of hope that God gives to his wayward people. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you'll be called my husband and no longer my master. How do we serve the Lord today? As my husband, like it's a relationship, or as my master, you're my boss. You're my taskmaster. I am serving you, sir, because I'm afraid of you. I don't want to make you mad. I uh, I want to go to heaven when I die and I'm afraid of, of what might happen if I'm not a good boy. Is that how we serve God? Or do we serve Him like, man, I can't believe what you've done for me. You are so good to me. I just love you. And I just want to serve you. Right? Do you see the difference? It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And so God says, I want you to serve me like a husband, not like a master. And so the way we, again, oftentimes, we as Christians, as religious people, we want to serve God like our master. But in reality, he wants to be served relationally. And so uh, that's what he makes available to us. We'll read the rest of chapter 2 in one chunk here. So, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be re remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field. Again, just see all the hope here. And with the birds of the air and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I'll betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Again, beautiful picture of restoration. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, the place where they scattered. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And, they, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. A beautiful picture, again, of God's restoration and uh, God's love for his people. And again, this is available to any of us at any point on an individual basis. 
okay? And it's going to happen prophetically with the nation of Israel, ultimately in the millennial kingdom, but that has begun even now as we see in the restoration of a literal Israel. Chapter 3, I want to read just briefly. It's short. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for her children of Israel who took to other God, who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley and I said to her, you shall stay with me many days, you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too I will be toward you. Just a great picture here that oftentimes, you know, when we, when we get saved, when God buys us, uh, in a sense, he, re- he redeems us, He restores us, He sows us instead of scatters us, He gives us mercy instead of no mercy, He declares us His children instead of not my children, right? We still sometimes then stumble, right? And we still sometimes uh, have, you know, ups and downs in our, in our Christian life. And here again, He goes back to the narrative of the real life uh, metaphor of, of Hosea. And by this time, this is now his second command. His first command was go take a wife of harlotry, and so he married Gomer. But by now, it would appear that she has left him, perhaps again, and says, now she's not a harlot. Please catch the, the without too much clarity, <laughs> please catch the detail here. She's no longer a harlot. She's an adulteress. Okay? So he says, now... Take a woman, now, now go and uh, she's committing adultery just like the children of Israel are to the Lord. And she's apparently committed adultery to the point that she's in the slave market. Okay? So this would have really happened historically. Gomer is now a slave. She has sold herself into slavery as a result of, of her adultery. And so he buys her from the slave market. Isn't that a great picture of God? He buys her from the slave market. But notice this also. He buys her for 15 shekels of silver and a little bit of barley. Now, barley was an undervalued grain. It was just used to feed animals. And the normal price for a slave was 30 pieces of silver. Her sin has caused her to be devalued. You see this? Her sin has caused her to be devalued, but Hosea buys her anyway. He buys her anyway. It's a great picture that sin devalues us, but God buys us back anyway. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and good and his goodness in the latter days. Again, a reference to the millennium. God loves his people. God loves his people. God loves his people just as much when they stray as he does when they don't. God loves to redeem broken people. God loves to fix messes. God loves to restore and redeem, and he makes it all possible. Think of it as we relate to Gomer, right? We're Romans 3 sinners. Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We are all on the same level in terms of, of sinners who need a Savior. And now we get to enjoy a relationship with him based on love, not based on a religious master. As we relate to Hosea, can I tell you this? As it relates to Hosea, please, 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 let us not be those that think we're better than anybody else. Let us not be the Hosea. I mean, Hosea was a great example for us. And we see no reference that he thought he was better than Gomer, right? I love the picture. I love the picture of God, but I love the obedience of Hosea. And so uh, we're no better than anybody else, right? We need to have mercy. We need to share in God's plan to restore others to himself. And God allows us to take part of that. But ultimately, please, in, this, in this, these first three chapters, please don't miss the heart of God. The heart of God is for his children to return. And he makes it all possible. We just have to say yes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that through this amazing, though somewhat difficult story, Lord, it's a little bit hard to read how hard that situation would have been. Lord, we know that relationships are hard, but this is a hard one. We know that relationships can be difficult. We know that relationships require forgiveness and, and redemption and restoration and all of that. And Lord, here's a situation that's just, that's just awful. And yet, Lord, we see in it your heart to fix ugly messes. And so, Lord, thank you that you fixed the ugly mess of our lives and that you continue to do that. And that you who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to that. So help us to serve you, Lord, as, as a relational God. Not as a master, but as a relational God. Lord, help us to, um, help us to just desire that, that relationship with you. Help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.